Hello, welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is your host, Robbie Martin. And today we have a very special guest, um, a guest that we haven't had on the podcast in a while, uh, Cindy Sheehan. So how are you today, Cindy? I'm doing okay, uh, Robbie. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing okay as well. Um, doing as best as I can with just kind of the nightmarish situation that's happening um, with our election right now. Right. Um, so, you know, we, we kind of just planned today to, to talk about what's going on in the world. And, and um, I'm just curious to hear from you. Um, as a longtime anti-war activist and having, you know, been really involved politically during some of the worst periods of, you know, modern American history, um, what what is your take about what's happening right now? What is your take on Trump, Hillary, and um, and and Bernie? Well, let's just start there. <laughs> okay, so I call them Trump. Clinton and Sanders because I recently had you on my show and like I told you I don't feel like calling them by their first names even though they want you to because uh, they're not they want to project like they're our buddies like they're somebody that we would like to have a beer with or a cup of coffee right. and nothing could be further from the truth and really you know <laughs> My personal life and and the life of of the nation and the world really are going to hell in a handbasket, but trying to hold it together here too. But um, wow, this election coming up. I just heard somebody from the DNC. I didn't watch a second of it, but you know we get reports and we we get uh, articles and YouTube's and things like that. He was a, a filmmaker, and I don't remember what his name was, but he was taught, you know, one of the people who were uh, tasked with uh, really uh, pumping up Hillary Clinton. He said that this was the most important election of our lifetime. Have you ever heard that before? Every oh, no, never. <laughs> it's the most important election of our lifetime. But I just really think that. Um, the it's not the cream of the crop that is rising to the top. It's the crap of the crop. And I don't even like, even calling it crap is, is too positive because, you know, we need fertilizer in our crops. So I, I really think that there's a concept called caucusocracy, and it's actually K-A-K-I, stocracy and it's a theory where the most vile and and unqualified people in the in the society rise to the top in leadership positions and the the United States has long been a vile uh, um, plutocracy oligarchy or whatever but the the people who are presenting themselves as wanting to be the the leaders, the policy makers, the politicians are just really shameful, vile people. And in this in this country, in this situation, not just in the United States, if you're in part of the one percent, you know, like our candidates are now, um, 
you got there because you lied, you cheated, you stole, you did whatever was necessary to be there. And in the case of Trump, of course, um, his money is inherited. And so it's just like, instead of worshiping these people, we should be denouncing them. We should be disdaining them. We should be in opposition to them. And really, they should be, you know, putting their heads in guillotines instead of running for president. So that's a, a little, uh, is that, was that too mild? <laughs> was that, was that a too mild <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. I, love I just really think that it it's it's sad. It doesn't say much for the United States of America that these are supposedly the two best candidates. And of course, um they're not the only candidates. And it just I I just the hypocrisy of the United States saying that Venezuela needs democracy or Cuba needs democracy or Iraq or, or, or whatever country needs democracy when we have the choice of really two people, even if they were two different people, even if the Democrats and Republicans were um, really different and not just essentially the same party with two different names, if if that were true, two choices is pitiful. It's it's pathetic. I mean, and it's it's interesting what kind of dynamic that creates. I mean, interesting is probably the wrong word, but um, it just creates this enormous amount of pressure and desperation every election, as you you just mentioned that. Um, everyone always acts like every four years this is the most important election of our lifetime. Um, if you don't, you know, vote for the lesser of two evils in this election, you're going to be, you know, now the rhetoric is you're going to be bringing forth fascism, which I don't think, I mean, as long as I've been alive, I've never heard the rhetoric get to that level of desperation, that if you don't vote for a Democrat, we're going to have a fascist government. I mean, that is on a whole other level than even uh, what I've experienced before. Would you agree with that? Oh, I think that it's really escalating. And um, and on the other hand, on the other side, they project the, the Democrats as they're some kind of wild-eyed socialists that, you know, oh my God, yeah. are going to rob the rich people of their riches and blah, 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 whatever. And nothing is further from the truth than that also. And so... I did watch a little bit of CNN over the week, and I don't. Oh, and when the, during the RNC, which I try to avoid um, CNN as much as possible, and just the the escalation of the rhetoric and the the way that the corporate media describes it, and and unfortunately, most Americans don't listen to Cindy Sheehan soapbox or Media Roots, and they really buy into that. Uh, baloney. So we we have a lot of work to do, but one of the solutions is not walking around the corner and casting your vote for fascist A or fascist B. Well, I completely concur. So what so do you think after seeing things escalating as you just said and and sort of this desperation that's coming out and this the most important election of all time and all that stuff, do you see third parties now playing a more important role or do you, are, do you have sort of a reassessment of what power a third party 
would be able to have, say, like a Jill Stein, for example? Well, um, you know, that's interesting because I don't see the Green Party <laughs> like going, Jill Stein, she, let's make her the next president of the United <laughs> States. I see them saying, let's get her 15% so she could be in the debates. You know, so um, I don't. I don't see a third parties like Gary Johnson of the Libertarians or Jill Stein of the Green Party making a significant difference. Now, back in 2012, uh, the last most important election of our lifetimes that there was, um, Mitt Romney and Barack Obama, even though in, there were over 30 people running for president, it, Combined, they got 98.5% of the vote. Yeah. So what does that tell you? And, of course, um, we see a more debate about this. At least I see more debate about third parties and how the two-party system is completely corrupt and it's just a figment of people's imagination but I, we see more debate about about it, and of, and what I see the most is not like let's boldly and courageously go out and vote for you know Jill Stein. I'm voting for Gloria Lariva myself. It's not that I don't vote, and it's not that I believe that Gloria is going to be the next president of the United States. But she is the closest person to my beliefs and my values. So I will walk around the corner and, and go vote, but I'm not thinking that this is the most important election of my lifetime and that my vote is anything but a protest vote against the corrupt nature of the empire and the, and the two-party system and politicians. But um, anyway, most of the, the answers I see or the debate I see on Facebook, unfortunately, is if you vote for Clinton, that's a vote for Trump. I mean, if you vote for, I'm sorry, Jill Stein, that's a vote for Trump. And so, of course, the Democrats are already dragging out poor Ralph Nader and how in 2000 he caused, you know, the George Bush administration, no matter how many times that, that lie has been discredited. But it's useful. It's useful for the ruling class to have that lie there. Oh, it's extremely useful, and it's so funny how that guilt has gone has carried. Uh, they've carried that guilt and tried to project it at you know more left leaning people who don't vote for the lesser of two evils for over fifteen years now. I mean, we've been hearing that mantra that Ralph Nader is the reason Bush got elected, um, which is so it's so insulting because these are the same people who were saying back then that Bush stole the election. He stole it with the right. Supreme Court vote. Had nothing to do with Ralph Nader. Right. I mean, so, I, I, and then not only that, I mean, it take, doesn't even take into account the fact that Al Gore probably didn't run a very good campaign or a great campaign. I mean, I, I probably wasn't paying enough attention back then. But Right, so well, and then he chose Lieberman to be his running mate, and he didn't even win his own state of Tennessee. So what does that tell you? And more Democrats voted for Bush in Florida than voted for Ralph Nader. So it's just a, it's just a complete lie. And um, it, it, it's, 
it just shows me a level of unsophistication for anybody who presents that to me. And people, Robbie, have gotten personal with me. They've said, oh, if if Al Gore won in 2000, well, first of all, he did. He got more. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he got more. Uh, he got more of a, a popular vote. And so unfortunately, you know, uh, the Electoral College, we could talk about that, too. But um, if Al Gore had won, then your son would still be alive. So that really is, to me, it's despicable to to tell a grieving mother something like that. I voted for Al Gore. I didn't vote for the, I actually voted for um, Kerry in 2004 cause, because I was a Democrat. And I actually did believe that lie about Ralph Nader until I just started even just barely researching uh, what happened. So I can see how people still be- still believe that, still uh, are lackeys of the ruling class to trot that out. I understand how that happens, but to be presented with the facts and see, I'm presented with facts and I change my mind. Most people presented with facts, they still have to root for their team. Yeah. Um, that's really messed up that someone would say that to you. Um, and it, it, I think it just illustrates how this partisan loyalty is just, it's, it's ultimately it's dangerous because especially with what we were talking about in the last podcast, that it really doesn't, the, it's almost like the political parties at this point have never been more irrelevant when you consider that Hillary Clinton is allying with the, neo, the Bush neocons and we have Trump this megalomaniacal narcissist, you know, race, you know, bring, trying to inflame all these racial tensions is outflanking Hillary Clinton from the left in terms of anti-war issues. And then, and then saying, oh, look, you screwed over Bernie. You know, how awful are you? I feel like he's using that as a talking point. Mm-hmm. So it's it, it, the per- political parties at this, at this stage, at least, um, are, at least to me, are totally meaningless. Um, and I, I guess, you know, it interests me that you're voting. So that's the, that's the socialist t- uh, presidential ticket, right? With Eugene Pierre as VP. Yeah. yeah, right. And it's the party for socialism and liberation because there's many socialists running for president. And we just don't have a united ticket that can get on as many ballots as the Green Party uh, can get on ballots. So... Um, then that's just how fragmented the the left is in the United States, where we can't we can't present a more united front against imperialism and capitalism and these bourgeois politics. Well, that it it, it presents an interesting dilemma because at this point, there's really nobody in the GOP or in the right wing putting that much energy in selling endless war to that side of things right now. Um, and I'm not saying that to mean that the GOP and Trump's campaign are anti-war at all. Right, right. The, the, all that illustrates is that they're channeling all their energy into the Democratic side of things um, right now. And uh, I, I guess, you know, another, uh, you, you bring up socialism. Were you incredibly annoyed like I was that Bernie Sanders was considered the socialist oh candidate for this election? <laughs> Oh, I, I, I wrote extensively about that. I, 
um, wrote an article, I think it was called Confessions of a True Socialist. But, you know, democratic socialism is more heavily Democrat than socialism, obviously. But it's the same as Obama being, a, it smears, it, it insults socialism to call Obama a socialist. And Bernie Sanders was a little less so, but the the biggest thing about Bernie Sanders is that socialism is not imperialist. True socialist, um, you know, the Soviet Union was a special case because they became militarist and, and, and imperialist, really, because Afghanistan was uh, the war, the first war, in Af the proxy war. Um, in Afghanistan when Carter was president, you know, that was, it was about militarism and imperialism. But anyway, it's not imperial. Socialism is not imperialist. Socialists respect the sovereign, sovereignty of other countries. And um, don't, if you're, if you're using the, na the, the national resources, the, um, you know, the the common good of a country for that country's common good. Like, I have to write an article. I'm writing a message to Fidel Castro that's due tomorrow, by the way, so I have to get on that, um, that's going to be included in a book because his 90th birthday is, is August 13th. So people are writing, and they're going to put it in a book and send it to Fidel. But... Um, I'm reflecting on it. You know, Cuba, when there's a crisis around the world, what does Cuba do? It sends doctors. Exactly. Oh, that's what socialism is. It's using the, the good and the wealth of the country to help people. And Cuba is such a small nation. They have so many doctors, so many engineers, so many teachers, so many professors that, that uh, Cuba has used that to spread that that good around mostly Latin America. So, so that's what, what socialism is about. Socialism, the base word is social. It's about taking care of people. Capitalism, what's the base word of capitalism? Capital. Oh, I just I heard a funny joke. It was that Bernie Sanders was going to write his manifesto called Das Capitulate instead of <laughs> Das Capitalism. <laughs> So that's capital. So um, that's, you know, that that's the way I feel about socialism. But at this point, Robbie, I think the, the true solution is to to have local socialism, you know, is to take care of your community and your family and have these local solutions that really are are more helpful to you than who what who's ever infesting the Oval Office at this point. And really look this kind of local socialism, this grassroots socialism is not too far from anarchism. So you just brought brought up a really interesting point which inevitably puts my mind state into a little I guess you could argue a conspiratorial framing, which is if Bernie Sanders was this so-called socialist, democratic socialist candidate, one of the first ones we've had in a long time to present all these domestic socialist-style programs, and he omitted an anti-imperialist you know, stance, really. I mean, you could argue that it was kind of almost completely vacant, 
there was almost none in his platform. Right. All right. he, you know, he, he, it was light. He would, he argued with Hillary Clinton a handful of times about her Iraq war vote, but relatively hands off. And his voting record shows that he's not an anti-imperialist. Mm-hmm. So that being said, um, it, do you think there is any possibility that his candidacy was signal boosted, that he was sort of pushed to the top? You know, you talk about the crap of the crop. Um, right. <laughs> because in a way he takes the socialist and left really left energy in this country and steers it away from anti-imperialism for, for right. almost a whole year. Right. No, I, I absolutely believe that happened with or without his consent. I believe it's more, um, more that he was a willing sheepdog as Bruce Dixon of black agenda report has called him because from the beginning. Well, explain he, really quickly what sheepdogging is. Is what you just said. It's like bringing all these people along, um, keeping them in the Democratic Party, not allowing them, or not, I'm not saying allowing, but, you know, not um, making them look hard at his foreign policy and to just bring and look what happened at the DNC. He completely, totally capitulated to the Democratic Party and Hillary Clinton. He didn't even he w- didn't even look reluctant about it. <laughs> and so no. So what are the people going to do now that were uh, his delegates, his supporters? So um, they're still they're still here. They're still registered Democrat, even though he became an independent. But I I believe that he performed a function that has been performed by Dennis Kucinich, that has been performed by um, Jesse Jackson, that has been performed by other um, so-called uh, leftist Democrats before. Would Howard Dean be thrown into that mix? Maybe? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And be, keep these people in the Democratic Party and, and their functionaries. Even though Sanders has been independent, he's been a more reliable Democrat than any other Democrat in the Senate. And so, um, no, I, I completely agree with you. I, I think, or I don't know if you were positing that theory. I don't know if that's one that you believe in, but I, I totally believe that um, Bernie Sanders performed that function. Um, yeah, and it's not, and you, you bring up the point of he didn't have to be a willing participant in it. He could have just gone along with it. Um, right. I mean, he even cut his hair and looked presentable. He didn't, he didn't have wild hair at the DNC like he's like Einstein or something. But, <laughs> but, and it's really sad, though, Robbie, because I saw in 2008 when Obama ran first and people said that he was the peace candidate, which was completely ridiculous. Um, I was running for Congress against Nancy Pelosi in San Francisco. and I voted he, for you, Cindy. Thank you. And we had a, uh, we'd go to um, Bayview Hunters Point a lot and do a lot of things with that community there. And it's the only, it's like the only African American um, community still left in San Francisco, or it was at that time. I don't even know how much of it remains at this point. But the young people there, I'd go and campaign and they would chant at me, Obama. Obama. 
And it was hard for me to explain that I wasn't running against him, that, you know, they could vote for Obama and still vote for me. But I saw all of these young people who voted for the very first time, voted for a person that looked like them, and then get get completely betrayed by the Obama administration. And then I see all these young people um, in the Sanders campaign who, who feel the same way. They feel like... Maybe he was addressing the issues that, that they cared the most about, and they get so excited, they get really worked up by his campaign, and then they also get betrayed. And instead of like looking for alternative solutions, they said their leader told them to vote for Hillary Clinton, so that must be what they need to do. And my my uh, position on this is if Bernie Sanders was a political revolution, then he then this political revolution means to vote for the counter revolution, because if he was a revolution, then Clinton's a counter revolution. And in reflecting on Fidel Castro and what he's done, that would be like Fidel Castro losing his revolution and there, and then turning around and, and endorsing the the um, violent dictatorship of Batista. <laughs> so it's just oh, he had Bernie Sanders is a, I can't say he's a sellout because I don't even know if he ever you know, had anything to sell out. Like I said, he's been a real reliable Democrat for many decades. But That's true, yeah. he's a political coward. And I I would I wanted to go to Philadelphia and protest there and talk to people and reach out to people because my hope would be that his supporters would reject the Democratic Party and leave in droves. And, you know, I'm hoping that Trump destroys the the Republican Party, but I was hoping that the Sanders campaign would destroy the Democratic Party. But, I mean, he, he has to go write his memoir, Das Capitulate. <laughs> <laughs> well, so the sheepdogging phenomenon that happens, uh, it seems like this time... It it almost seemed like it wasn't that hard to predict at all with that this was going to happen with Sanders from the very beginning because as you said he was a really reliable Democrat. Well, he was very clear about endorsing whoever was going to be yeah. the Democratic nominee, and he said, "Well, of course I will. I've I've always done that. You know, he's always uh, endorsed the Democratic nominee. I don't even know why he has this." this farce of um, being registered independent. He hasn't been independent. He hasn't made any independent votes in Congress. He's always, he went along with the, the decision to invade Afghanistan. He was not the only one who decided not to vote for the um, invasion of Iraq. But like George Bush said, hey, you guys already gave me authority in Afghanistan. I don't really even need your vote. And that's what Obama's been using. Obama still uses that authorization to use military force for justification of all his war crimes. Did you see that moment in in the debates uh, where where he brought up his anti-war vote to Hillary and she fired back with, 
well, you voted for a, a bill in like the 90s when my husband was president that was like the liberate it was like the liberation right. to overthrow Saddam Hussein bill or right. something. No, no, yeah, I I don't. And Hillary, I mean, like she kind of that was like a smart retort because it it's the like Iraq Liberation Act or something, something like, like that. that. Yeah, I mean, that was a very smart retort, but it sounds like something I would say. Yeah, so it's like, <laughs> you, and that's and and I've talked about this on Media Roots a lot recently. Is it's like that boxing in effect where neoconservatives and that neoconservative uh, framework. It's like all these neocons and and you know Hillary, like a you know people who are now kind of neocon ish. Um, they can take it all the way back to, you know, all the people who voted for all these other awful things, you know, who may claim to be anti-war now um, and show that they really weren't that anti-war. Um, but Kucinich, you brought up Kucinich, and I wanted you to just describe for the listeners how he sheepdog people, because it seemed like he was actually way more genuinely left on the things that you and I, you know, you know, focus on like anti-imperialism than than right. Bernie Sanders right. when he ran against Clinton and Obama, and of course he wasn't signal boosted, you know, to the level that Bernie was. Uh, curiously, in quotes. But right. um, what did he do uh, in your mind that you think um, where he kind of brought people back around to, you know, steer them away from, uh, you know, more anti-imperialist views? Well, I actually. Uh... Dennis Kucinich, I think, is one of, as a politician, he really ha adheres to his own personal values, and he adheres to an anti-war, consistent anti-war, anti-empire, for sure. And he's not somebody that I dislike. Um, personally, he called me when I announced I was going to run against Nancy Pelosi, and he said, Cindy you have my support. I support everything you do. And then I was interviewed a couple months later in the Hill newspaper in, in um, Washington, D.C., and they asked me who supported me, and I said, Dennis Kucinich. And, huh. and so they got him, and they did not, he, he denied it. He goes, oh, no, I never, I never support anybody who's running against a, an independent, I mean, a, who's running against an incumbent. Why what? would it, I, I want every incumbent to be out of office like right now. But so personally that hurt my feelings, but, but politically and impersonally, I, I do think Dennis Kucinich has a lot of integrity. Um, after he did that to me, I had him on my show when he proposed impeaching um, Barack Obama for his attack on Libya. So I just want to clarify that and say, yeah, I think that he does have a lot of political integrity. However, when he ran in 04 and 08, he threw his support behind the nominee. And so if he's so anti-war, how could you support Kerry or how could you support Obama? And after he left office, he remained a Democrat. Now, the person I think that has the most political integrity and courage is Cynthia McKinney, because at least she realized that the Democratic Party didn't reflect her values and she didn't like lead anybody there or keep anybody there. And so people support Kucinich all along. And then he says, oh, he just did what Sanders did. Das capitulate. Let's throw our support behind the, um, you know, the the imperialists who got the nomination. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't really seem like 
it just raises the interesting phenomenon of there's no there's really nobody in the house or senate right now who's even as uh i, I hate to use the word extremist i'm using it uh, right. you know almost sarcastically right. as kucinich is right um, well you know martin luther king jr said it's not whether we will be extremists but what kind of ex extremists will we be the world needs extremists and the world needs somebody like me who's out <laughs> all the time saying the most unpopular things ever. <laughs> and then, you know, pretty soon it becomes mainstream. Well, that's the thing that I think is so important here. And I think it, it could be easily overlooked because we focus so much on the presidency. But let's just let's just capitulate the idea that the presidency is is incredibly locked down that they it's rigged in so many areas um that it would be incredibly difficult to get someone even remotely close to the way we feel into office but right i think getting someone in at the congressional level is not impossible and i that that has views closer to us and i think i'm just trying to do a thought experiment in my head right now of what you know, let's imagine if we had Hillary as president now and someone, just one person like you in Congress right. who could slam her every single day. I mean, the power of that. And who would slam her every single yeah, day? Yeah, exactly. So uh -huh. it would just be incredibly powerful. That would that would generate energy. I really think it would. And I, I, I mean, I don't think it's crazy for me to suggest that just that alone could have a, a drastic effect. Um, well, it should be somebody that would, but people would identify closely on the political, the same political spectrum, even though Hillary Clinton and I aren't even in the same universe, you know, she would be considered the left-ish candidate and to have somebody from the true left exactly. harping on her all the time, not Republicans, you know, I, I really don't criticize Republicans, I mean, Republicans are going to criticize the hell out of her and of course if trump wins democrats are going to criticize the hell out of him but to me that's like ineffectual it's useless you know i don't even criticize republicans that much because to me they're low-hanging fruit no, we have no. to go after the root of the problem not the low-hanging fruit the root of the problem is imperialism it's capitalism it's Wall Street, it's the war machine, and both parties represent those things. They don't represent us, they represent those things. And so people that listen to me or read my articles or come to hear me speak, they need to hear how corrupt the Democratic Party is. They don't need to hear how corrupt the Republican Party is because they already know that. Yeah, every single... Let's just call it the left media, lib you know, what, what people call the liberal media is mainly in this term, but the actual left-leaning media, all they do is criticize Republicans. Mm -hmm. That's 95% of the airspace out there in our media is about that. I mean, that's, and I, that, and that's why I read and listen to people like you and, you know, other people who spend time criticizing the, the you know the things that need to be criticized because there's so there's just so much other crap out there but um 
you know, and then the comedy, the political comedy circuit is, is all that too. You know, it's just all Republican after Republican. I mean, at a certain point, the Daily Show and Colbert Report were just like, you know, can't you guys write more clever material than this? You know, know. it's just mind blowing. And then of course, then they bring on Democrats, you know, they introduced us all. I feel like Debbie Wasserman Schultz was almost like a, um, or no, not, not her. I'm sorry. Elizabeth Warren. Right. was almost like brought to you by the daily show you know she's going to take on wall street and you know she's great and and she's not i mean i just sorry i'm just going off on no, no, it's here. Not, I, I completely agree and to me criticizing republicans is almost like making fun of handicapped people yeah. you know it, it's it's just it's wrong it's just too easy and you know it's cheap it's like super cheap to do that when the the analyze the analyzation is that a word? That it, it, the analysis needs to be about the system and the the corrupt Democrats uh, are half of that uh, horrible violent system. And really, let's go back to just the war side of things. Uh, mm-hmm. um, so, really, what are the differences now? I mean. If we're going to talk about all the, the you know, the, the famous Wesley Clark speech and, you know, Wesley Clark, I don't think is very trustworthy, but he did, you know, I believe him when he, when he said that right after 9-11, he saw a memo and he was told that the Bush administration had a plan to attack seven countries in five years. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think that was the phrase. Right. Um, and almost all of those countries, uh, you know, even after the Bush administration was over, Obama picked that up and is now engaging in some way or another militarily with most of those countries. Right. Syria, Libya, um, Yemen even now is in a and is in a weird proxy war with one of our biggest allies in the Middle right. East. So right. and and then the things that don't even have to do with the Middle East are, you know, Ukraine, um and 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 these other situations in, in Eastern Europe. Um, but then Syria, of course, so going back to Syria, that puts the whole other, um, there's a whole other aspect of that, which that's another proxy war between the United States right. and Russia. It's not just part of the war on terror. So right. what are the differences, if any, right now between Democrats and what used to be almost like a Bush foreign policy vision, um, just in terms of their outlook on how we should engage with with the world right well i'll tell you the big difference is that any war that obama has started or continued is a humanitarian intervention (laughs) not a war dare you call it a war robbie um so this is like i lost so many supporters when i criticized the no-fly zone over libya the you know the UN said they they had a resolution to have a no fly zone, and I said okay you know no fly zone means the U.S. will be actively bombing it soon, and people told me Cindy, you don't care about the people of Libya, the United States Barack Obama is going there to overthrow an evil dictator and make Libya a better place. I don't know how many messages I got like that, Robbie, and now look at Libya. 
and we can look at the Democratic nominee and her former boss, the President of the United States, as responsible for almost the complete destruction of Libya. 100%. Tens of thousands of Libyans killed. Now, who doesn't care about the people of Libya? Me or the United States Empire? But they said it was a humanitarian intervention. And like I told you, when I had Dennis Kucinich on, when he wanted to impeach Obama for invading Libya, not because it was wrong, but because he didn't ask Congress. But I I know Dennis thought it was wrong. When I had him on, he said humanitarian intervention is an oxymoron. Well, it is. um, Absolutely. And even the Bush administration at times was trying to spin that also, that we're going to liberate the Iraqi people, that there was almost a feminism angle on Afghanistan. Still. Um, and there still is, yeah. Um, Some liberal people bought into it. I remember... It was, Obama became president. Yeah, like Jay... I remember like Jay Leno's wife was on some PR crusade to go over to Afghanistan and get, you know, women to throw off their uh, burkas and stuff and like that. Code Pink. Code Pink was involved in that too. So it, I think Libya, and maybe you disagree with this, but the, I think Libya at least was one of the big turning points, tipping points, where the left almost lost uh, its ability to be a powerful anti-war voice. And not and I and I don't think I, I don't think everybody on the left did. I just think a lot of our the agency was taken away at that point, which almost allowed this sort of gray area now where you see a lot of fence sitting and just non-committal attitudes from people on the left towards things like Libya and Syria and even Ukraine. And but you can take it even back further than that, I think, and you and I have discussed this, you know, in private before that the Afghanistan war was never fundamentally addressed by the left, I don't think, in, no. a, in a really serious way, where it was like, look, there really was no moral, um, you know, there was, this wasn't a war of defense. It wasn't a justified war. Um, even our stated reasons for going over there to capture bin Laden or to disrupt the al-Qaeda training camps ended up pretty much being phony. I mean, there were hardly any al-Qaeda captured in Afghanistan. Um, it was mostly just to oust the Taliban, um, which we propped up in the first place under the Clinton regime. And right. U- Unical in 76, uh, oil companies were trying to run a pipeline through there and were courting Taliban leaders, bringing them to the United States, letting them do press conferences. Um, so, Well, it goes even farther back, further back than that. It goes to, oh, the, yeah. to the Carter administration. Is that what you meant instead of Clinton administration? When they were supporting the Mujahideen against um, Against the the Russians. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I did. No, I did mean Clinton, but no, you can take it back to the Mujahideen as well. So. Right. And uh, way farther, further back than that. Um, I think, I don't know if you pointed it out in your documentary or if I saw it in another documentary about the the dam building, building dams and, you know, things like that in Afghanistan. No, Robbie, the left, 
the so-called left anti-war movement uh, supported the invasion of Afghanistan for the most part, saying that we were attacked on 9-11, blah, blah, blah. Even as late as 2005, a group I was affiliated with, Military Families Speak Out, said that I shouldn't say the war in Afghanistan was bad because most Americans support it. Oh, great. Ta-da! So, that's a great reason to, yeah, to not to not be principled. But I think I don't think the turning point for the for the demolition of the anti-war movement was actually Libya. I think it was actually in 2007 when the Democrats took uh, over control of the House of Representatives. We had many anti so-called anti-war groups. Um, saying that we shouldn't protest the Democrats, that we shouldn't have hold any more large demos in Washington, D.C., because it would embarrass the Democrats. Impeachment um, off the table. Impeachment's off the table. Don't pressure the Democrats about the war funding. And it, move on it comes to mind as one of the biggest uh, promoters of Democrats and not trying to hold them accountable. And then, of course... And Obama, the Nobel Peace Prize winner, became president. I mean, he got he was awarded it shortly after his inauguration. I mean, that was almost the complete destruction of any left anti-war movement. And then where's the right anti-war movement? Libertarians are supposedly against war. I don't see them staging any massive demonstrations. No. I mean, Rand Paul was supposed to be, you know— in the image of his father in terms of the anti-war thing. And, and he capitulated real fast <laughs> yeah, not. there. And he actually, <laughs> he signed the, uh, the anti-Iran deal letter um, that right. was basically just put up, you know, was created but, by Bill Crystal. Didn't he have um, Abby arrested? He, he tried to, he tried to. Yeah. That was, that would have been Abby's first arrest actually, if, if uh, <laughs> that was successful. Um, no, he, he she she asked him why he was endorsing Mitt Romney, um, and he just completely stonewalled her and didn't talk to her, and she just kept walking with him. Followed him inside the Capitol building, and I guess he was so upset he had never been confronted by anyone, especially an anti-war person like that, that he just lost his mind and threatened to uh, arrest her. He didn't have anybody. He didn't have Capitol Hill police come to her house or something like that. He had a Capitol police person call her and act oh. threatening so like yeah it was it was a really weird experience um for her and uh well yeah. it actually helped to to um expose him as a fraud i mean i always knew he was a fraud but there's so many people you know his dad's followers that actually believed that he was going like you said following his dad's footsteps he said he's against drones unless you see somebody coming out of a of a liquor store holding fifty dollars and a gun, then you can drone somebody. Yeah, he's he's really he really is an idiot. No, he is. I mean, <laughs> I mean and there's basically it just proves my theory of the crap rising to the top. No, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, you know, his dad had a, a lot of faults, you know, let's not beat around the bush about that. But Compared to his dad, I mean, yeah, he was quite moronic. And uh, well, Dennis Kucinich and Ron Paul really were the most reliable anti-empire people we had uh, during their time of, of Congress. And during the time when I spent a lot of time 
in Washington, D.C. before I figured out it was a waste of time and money to try and to do anything with the, with the criminals in Congress and the White House. So, um, but he did, Ron Paul, yeah, no, I, I'm not a supporter, but I do admire his, his stance, especially trying to run as a Republican. Yeah, I mean, arguably, you know, the Tea Party's roots, the very original roots of it came from, you know, the spirit of Ron Paul. But then, you know, as we've seen, and even with like, you know, Infowars and stuff and, and all that sort of more fringe, you know, stuff uh, be, is now just been co-opted into this weird kind of uh, mainstream right wing you know, um, now it's it's all anti Black Lives Matter, and now they're all spreading all this Islamophobia and right. stuff like well, that. You, when you saw Michelle Bachman and um, Glenn Beck and people like that coming into the movement, I could see as I as the anti war movement was co opted by Democrats, I could see the Tea Party being co opted by neoconservative Republicans. Yeah, and that's what happened. Yeah, and it happens so fast. I mean. And it does raise the question, again, a little bit maybe conspiratorial of me, that it almost seems like those movements at their roots were, were very threatening, the right. anti-war movement and the sort of very early iteration of the Tea Party to this war engine, and they needed to be co-opted extremely quickly to yes. to stop that threat. Um, and well, I'm going to tell you, moveon.org was at Camp Casey on day two. Yeah. So they've very skillfully used that energy to just elect Democrats. And then once that happened, the, the energy of the anti-war movement was completely betrayed. I was completely betrayed. And so, no, they are very skillful at that, Robbie. You can't really allow any oh, Occupy Wall Street was co-opted by Move On. You, you can't allow a, a movement to actually be a threat to the establishment. Exactly. And I think that that really illustrates how powerful the people's voice can be if we really used it loudly, strongly, and didn't capitulate. Because every time something strong gets generated, it needs to be squashed. And that really does say something about um, the power that we can still have, I think. Um, right. And, and to rely, like, I'm still here. I don't have a movement. You know, to, so, so these cults of personality aren't helpful either. You know, so in, in 2005, people would have done anything I told them to do. Why didn't I tell them to take their, their uh, you know, uh, rocket propelled grenades to Washington. <laughs> I don't know why I didn't tell them that, but, but you know, so, and then look at the Bernie Sanders movement. So it just, I'm not sure leaderless movements are the, are the, um, solution either, but I don't, I, I think locally, I think local's the solution. No, I think it's, I know. I think it's a huge part of it. And I mean, after talking to you today, I actually have, you know, I feel a little bit less cynical than I did um, a couple hours earlier, actually. Really? <laughs> because, uh, I, no. I think, I think a, a better name for cynical would be realist. 
Yeah. And, you know, the, these people who are supporting Clinton or supporting Trump, they are not realists. They are not grounded in, in political reality or social reality or any kind of reality. They're grounded in some kind of myth that uh, this is the most important election of our lifetime. I, I just said on my I said on my Facebook wall, I said, you know, um, you're you're just going to these people are going to just stand there with their mouths gaping open when that you know this POTUS election doesn't do shit for them. They're just going to be, oh my God, you mean my candidate wasn't the solution to every problem in the world in my house in the country, in the world, and they're just going to be so shocked, you know, that, but then in four more years, I don't know what's with these people. They're going to be convinced that this also is the most important election of our lifetimes. Well, Robbie, I'm losing my voice. <laughs> <laughs> We've been talking for hours and people don't even know that. I know. No, that we'll, we'll, we'll create the, um, the, perception that we've done two completely different uh podcasts Super podcast yeah no but it's uh it really is uh the amnesiac states of uh america i mean at we... least it's not like john gold he has like talks to people for four hours oh my god yeah i have i'm only like halfway through that <laughs> i told him i said he wanted to interview me i said 45 minutes <laughs> <laughs> what <laughs> well that being said let's let me leave this with one more question and you could, and we could wrap it up um, okay. that uh, now looking back on the Obama presidency um, that it's almost over. Um, I have to admit, and, and this is a really weird thing for me is that um, I worry that as bad as Obama was, that whoever gets in next is going to be worse. Right. on foreign policy Absolutely. and and if there is there anything um that you can look back on in the obama presidency and say you know what that was actually not a horrible decision he made well <clears throat> i really like i'm with you that it's not the presidency it's the institution it's really um, the crumbling empire, the decay, the t decay of empire. Um, I've long wanted um, the blockade of Cuba to be lifted, but what Obama did was go there and impose, you know, U.S. imperialism, his idea of it, on Cuba and on conditions for normalizing relations when the blockade hasn't even been lifted. And so it's, I don't, I don't think so, Robbie. I don't think that I can see anything positive about it. And I've said for a long time that people say, well, look at when, when Trump comes in or Clinton comes in, they have such a big mess to clean up. Well, what does that say, that say about your party if the if Clinton wins that the the previous president was a Democrat? Every every president inherits this complete abject failure of a nation, but we we're looking at it wrong. There the 
Obama hasn't failed. Obama did what he was put there to do, and that's to promote the interests of the ruling class. He was put there to um, put a kinder, gentler face on empire to demobilize any kind of opposition to it. So there's many people who are way better off today than they were when Obama became president. Um, Obamacare is terrible for the people. There's still tens of thousands of people that don't have insurance. With the inevitable decay and collapse of this empire, that every successive president will be more skilled at promoting the interests of Wall Street and the war machine, but less responsive to the people. You just have to look at Black Lives Matter or the the rise in, and I'm not sure cops are killing more people, but because of video and because of high profile cases where the cops are exonerated, we have a black president. We've had two black attorneys general. And the and we're no closer to racial equality in this country than we were before. In fact, we might even be farther apart because this polarizes people. Um, so I, I and people can read my book called The Obama Files, Chronicles of um, an Award-Winning War Criminal. <laughs> <laughs> To see how I feel about this issue. It's, and, and it's not about Obama. It's not about Clinton. It wasn't about Sanders. It's not about Trump. It's about the root of the issue here in the United States. And that's what people need. That's what we need to start hacking at. You know, like um, Henry David Thoreau said, um, there, for every one person hacking at the roots of the problem there's a thousand and there's a thousand like attacking the leaves you know and obama's a leaf clinton's a leaf trump's a leaf sanders was is still a leaf and so people we focus on all these leaves thousands of leaves when the root is imperialism and violence beautifully put cindy <laughs> and we'll we'll end it there. Um, well, thank you, Robbie. It was so good to talk to you um, today and do our uh, our Uber podcast. Yes, it was uh, it was wonderful talking to <laughs> you, Cindy. We're talking about when we actually uh, <laughs> when we actually post our Uber podcast. <laughs> okay, I love you. Say hi to your sister and and keep up the struggle. Love you too, Cindy. Have a okay. great rest of your day. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye.